Christ and his incarnation. We have prayed acknowledgement of his lordship. We have affirmed the truth about him in statement. And now I'd like to turn our attention to another ancient hymn about him that is found in our Bible. If you've been with us the past two Lord's Days, we have been looking in the New Testament at an ancient hymn about Christ in the letter to the church at Colossae. And this morning I want to draw our attention to really a sister kind of epistle to that of Colossae, and that is to the Philippian believers in Philippi. And if you'll turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, what we find here is another ancient hymn about Christ. Most theologians would readily acknowledge that. And this hymn that is familiar to really anyone who has been in Christian circles for any amount of time, it's a hymn that presents a great deal of doctrinal truth and instruction about Jesus. Much ink has been spilt in theological journals over this particular hymn. But what I find fascinating is that's not its chief aim. This hymn was given to these people at Philippi as a very practical way to illustrate the truth that Paul is trying to make known to this church. It's really an illustration. While Paul himself was imprisoned at Rome... He appealed to this congregation in Philippi to overcome matters among their midst that had to do with selfish ambition, had to do with desire for personal prestige, a kind of hard-headedness to have one's own way, and it was this kind of conflict going on in a church, and Paul addresses it head on. In fact, if you'll look with me at chapter 4 and verse 2, Paul kind of points out, I think, two people that may have been at the very front of this. In chapter 4 and verse 2, Paul says, I entreat Hyodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Why does he entreat them to do that? Because they were in disagreement. Now just imagine with me, you're in a church in the first century in Philippi, you receive a letter from the Apostle Paul, and that letter is going to be read publicly, and you are one of these two ladies sitting in that congregation, and your name is read. Would you not feel like crawling under your pew at that point? And that kind of tells us the degree to which there must have been some great angst and trouble among this congregation that the apostle actually speaks of it openly. It is addressed to Christians who were tempted to be unloving, divisive, selfish, arrogant, only concerned about their own rights and their own perspectives. And because of that, there was great unrest. 
And so Paul tells them in verse 2 of chapter 4 to agree in the Lord. How are they to agree in the Lord? It's interesting that Paul doesn't say, now Hyodia Sintuki is right, so listen to her. Nor does he say Sintuki or those who aside with her, Huodia is right, agree with her. He says, I want both of you to agree in the Lord. And when he uses the term agree here, it has a term that has the idea in it of, of thinking or thought process or, or mindset, we would say. In other words, he's saying, both of you have forgotten that this is the mindset you need to have as a follower of Christ. And the reason that's significant is if you'll go back to chapter 2, Paul uses that same term that's translated agree in chapter 4 and verse 2. And he uses it repeatedly in the exhortation at the beginning of the second chapter. Look at verse 1. Paul says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and by that he means is, since you're in Christ and we have fellowship together, we have affection for one another, we're a family. Verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same what? Mind, there's our term. Having the same love, being in full accord, and of one what? Mind, there's our term. You see, he's already said to these ladies and those that were involved in that, here's what you must have, the same mind, one mindset. That's what will resolve the issue. Well, what is this mindset? That is what we find in this hymn. The hymn begins in chapter 2 and verse 5. And it runs all the way down through verse 11. And notice how the hymn begins. Have this what? Mind. There's our term again. Think this way. This will resolve the conflict. This is how you get along with people that are even hard to get along with. So notice the example with me as I read beginning in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul takes up this hymn and uses it as an illustration 
of how followers of Christ should live. So this morning, I want us to examine this hymn, and I've titled the message, Imitating the Incarnation. That title's not original with me. It was actually a title of a famous sermon, essay that was delivered by a noted theologian by the name of B.B. Warfield. And he did so back in 1893. But I liked his title so much, I stole it. Because it really does capture the essence of what this hymn is all about. We are to be imitators of the mindset that Jesus had in his incarnation. And what we'll note this morning by this hymn is this. By his attitude and actions, Christ is the perfect example of putting aside self-interest and serving others. By his attitude, his mindset, and his actions, he's the perfect example of this. Not thinking of himself, but coming to serve others, to serve us. And this should be our imitation. Let's pray and ask God to help us see these things clearly. Lord, would you help us in the few moments that we have as we focus in on this truth about imitating the mindset of Jesus, having this mind among us. Would you help us to understand what this is and apply it to ourselves? Lord, keep us from doing that which we're so prone to do and think of everybody else in the room that needs to hear this. May we know that each of us individually need to hear this. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sociologists agree that contention, dissatisfaction, Anger are on the rise in our society. Most attribute this to the rise of self-importance among people. We've gotten to this point of almost a tipping point in society that people are so focused on themselves and their own self-importance that every event that occurs in their life or that occurs in the culture somehow is reflecting on them And everything is interpreted through that lens. Because of that, there's a a rise in, as I said, anger, despair. The mindset of the culture in which we live is not to put others first, but to put yourself first. It's like Burger King, have it your way. This appeals to us constantly as we move about in our culture. You're the king. You deserve what's best for you. People are encouraged to put themselves out there and be an influencer, one that everybody looks to and knows and likes because you're so important. In a culture like that, a victim mentality sets in very simply. It's a mentality or a type of thinking that believes everybody else is the problem that I'm facing. If other people would just come around to my way of thinking, 
all the problems of the world would be solved. A victim mentality insists that I deserve better. Somehow I've been given the short end of the stick. A victim mentality sees the world only in relation to myself. And that is a formula for contention and strife. But I'm encouraged in some way to know that that's not only a 21st century problem. It was actually a first century problem. Because it's a human problem. And the Bible addresses it. And the Bible addresses it very clearly in the context of a hymn to Christ that is elevated in its language and yet eminently practical in its application. The Bible says that all of us should put on this mindset, the mindset of Jesus. What is this mindset? Simply two things for you this morning. The first is this. I want us to note that Christ exemplifies humility and seeking to serve others. His mindset was not one of self-promotion, self-adulation. His mindset was one of humility and serving. And this is what it means to be like Christ. How does he demonstrate this? And how does the hymn demonstrate this was Jesus' mindset? Notice with me, please, in verse 6. It speaks of the prominent or preeminent place that Christ enjoyed. Verse 5 says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who, speaking of Christ, though he was in the form of God. The term form there in this verse, when we think of form in English, we think of kind of the outward form of something, almost like a mold or appearance. But the underlying Greek term is a term that actually refers to an inner essence of something. It's, it's the actual thing underneath all the outside stuff. And what Paul is saying by implementing this term is this, that Jesus existed as God. It doesn't mean that he was in the form that he somehow looked like God before he came to earth. It means that whatever God is, Jesus is. He had this very essence to him. He who has always been God by nature, we could read in the text, that, that this was Jesus in the form of God. But notice his pre-incarnate choice. Although he existed in this form, verse 6, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, what does it mean that Jesus didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped? Did it become something less than God? What Paul's actually communicating here is that although Jesus existed in this very form and essence of God, he didn't demand those privileges. He was willing to relinquish this high position and come in a way that didn't demonstrate that high position, but that he appeared very humble and lowly. When it says that he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, it's, it's speaking of regarding as, as something to be taken advantage of. In other words, Jesus didn't say, because I am God in this very essence, therefore I will come and I will demand that everybody else acknowledge that right now. There was a humility to this. 
He didn't regard his divine prerogatives as something to use for his own advantage. He was willing to let that go. He didn't clutch to it and demand his rights. He let it go. This was the mindset of Jesus. Being equal with God did not mean taking everything to himself as God rightly deserves, but rather it means that Jesus was willing to give everything away. Although he had this preeminent place, he was willing to give that away. And verse 7 tells us of this lowly position that he accepted. Verse 6, though he was in the form of God, he was the essence of God, he didn't count equality with God, this thing to be grasped or used for his own advantage. But verse 7, rather he emptied himself. Now, of all the words in this hymn, this is the one that probably gets the most attention. What do you mean Jesus emptied himself? The term that underlies this English word empty is a word kenosis. Maybe you've heard of that. Kenosis. Some people talk about that. Kenotic theory. Right? What is that? Well, it refers to this passage, and it says that Jesus existed as God, but he emptied himself. Okay? When we think of emptying something, we think of something being taken away or given away. It's poured out. And so the natural question is, well, of what did Jesus empty himself of? What did he give away? If he emptied himself, what did he pour out? And if you look at the passage very carefully, verse 7, he emptied himself. Why did he empty himself? He didn't consider his, his position, privilege in heaven to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And what's the next word? What's the next word? But he emptied himself, the next little word. By. What is that telling us? It's explaining to us what he emptied or, or how he emptied himself. The text itself explains what is going on. And here's what it means. Verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. There's that word again, form. It's the essence of a servant. It speaks of humanity. Jesus emptied himself not by divesting himself of any deity. He emptied himself by taking on a full humanity. It was like, it was like Jesus stepped out of heaven and, and veiled all of his deity in a, in a mud-like humanity. He put that on. And the idea is not that Jesus emptied himself of anything with regard to his deity, but it's to what he emptied himself into. He poured himself into humanity. And when people looked at him on the earth, primarily, what did they see? They saw his humanity. They saw a young man growing up, probably brown eyes, probably brown hair, probably dark skin. They knew the timbre of his voice. They knew his favorite things to do. And when they looked at him, they saw a human being like any other human being. And it would not have occurred to them while he was growing up 
This is God walking among us. Why? Because he didn't clutch to that privilege, but he said, I will pour myself into a humble state, and I will gladly veil that. And then we're told this. Look again at verse 7. He emptied himself. How did he do that? By taking the form of the servant, being born in the likeness of men. Very interesting word here. This is not the same word as form of God or form of a servant. Remember, that word is the term for the essence of something. This is a term, likeness, that has to do with something that that is similar or appears some way. So you read it and it says that Jesus was born in the appearance or likeness of men. And you might think, well, is it saying that Jesus wasn't really a man? He just appeared to be a man? Okay, stick with me. Y'all with me? I know it's Christmas Eve. You'll have plenty of time. I'll get you out in plenty of time to open your presents tomorrow, I promise. Okay? <laughs> likeness of men? Is it saying Jesus wasn't a man? What the Holy Spirit is communicating here is this. Jesus came and appeared as a human being, but he wasn't exactly like us. Some of you say, "Uh uh-oh. Is this where pastor goes off the deep end and we have to revoke his preaching license? (laughs) How was Jesus not exactly like us? You and I are human beings, but we are fallen human beings. We possess a sin nature. And if you don't agree with that, then just stop sinning. The Lord Jesus had no sin nature. And in language, the Holy Spirit's being very explicit and saying Jesus came in the likeness of us, but he wasn't exactly like us. And so someone may say, well, that means he wasn't human, right? And what I would say, no, that means he is more human than you and I are. Because it was the perfect humanity that God had originally created. You and I are are fallen image bearers. He's he's the perfect one. He's actually the most human. So you read in the text that Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, this, this essence of humanity, but he was born in this likeness of men. It was, it was the fullness of humanity, a sinless humanity. And then notice verse 8. Notice the humiliation he endured as a human, being found in human form. Now here again, I know I'm being very technical with the language, but, but the precision of the Holy Spirit in giving us this keeps us from going places we shouldn't. So when it says that he was found in human form, again, that term is not the term essence, like we read being in the form of God. I wish our translator has translated it differently, but but this is the term, I'll give you the Greek word because you'll recognize it, it's the term schemati. And think of a schematic. What is a schematic? 
It's, it's a representation. It's, it's a design. It's putting something out on paper. And what it's saying here is this about Jesus. He was found in this human schematic that, that when people looked at him, again, they didn't see godness in him. They saw a normal man who, who grew and matured in a normal way, who spoke in a normal way. And because he had this true humanity that he took upon himself, and it appeared outwardly and always human, and that's why we read of Jesus when he's on earth and he's hungry and he's tired. Those are human things. Those are not sinful things. Those are human things. And Jesus experienced all of that. God poured himself into that. And that's why this was possible, verse 8. Being found in this human form, he humbled himself further. How? By becoming obedient to the point of death. Death on a cross. This is the humiliation that Jesus endured. As God, he humbled himself and became man. As man... He humbled himself and died on a cross. The most humiliating kind of death that was known in that day. Imagine the steps down. This was Jesus' mindset. He wasn't climbing the ladder of success. He was descending the ladder of service and humility. And by his attitude and actions, Jesus Christ is the perfect example of putting aside self-interest and serving others. And Paul says, this should be your mindset. If you want to resolve conflict, this has to be your mindset. There's a great illustration of this truth. It's given by Brian Chappell. It's one I read many, many years ago, but it has always stuck with me, and I share it with you now. Chapel says, in some remote areas of Africa, the strongest man of the tribe is the chief. And you might think this because the chief must wear a very large headdress and big ceremonial robes, but there are other reasons for this. Water is very scarce where these people live, so they have to dig very deep wells. These are not wells as we know them with brick walls and a pulley and a bucket at the end of a rope. The African people actually sink a narrow well shaft as much as 100 feet into the ground. Even though the well is deep, the groundwater of the dry land seeps very slowly into it, and there's never a drop to waste. If the water were too easy to reach, the people might not use it sparingly, or an enemy might steal the next day's supply at night. So the tribesmen cut alternating slits into the wall of the well all the way down to the water. Only the largest, strongest men can make the arduous climb down the wall and back up with a full water skin for the whole tribe. One day, a man carrying water out of the shaft fell and broke his leg. He lay at the bottom of the well. No one dared to help because no one had the strength to make the climb out of the well carrying another man. The chief was summoned. When he saw the plight of the injured man, he doffed his massive headdress and discarded his ceremonial robe. 
Then the chief climbed down into the well, took the weight of the injured man on himself, and brought the man to safety. The chief did what nobody else could do. Beloved, that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. Let me ask you, when that chief took off his ceremonial robes, did he cease being the chief? No. He simply took on a different form, as it were, to descend to help the plight of the man in the well. Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven. He didn't cease to be God. He simply veiled that deity in human flesh so that he would save us in our plight as only he could do by taking our sin upon himself and bearing it to a cross that he might make full payment for our sinful nature. This is the mind of Christ he did this not thinking of himself and what it would accomplish for him, but thinking of us in our need, in our plight. And so this is the mind of Christ that his followers must have among God's people. There may be some of you here today in turmoil, in disunity, in your family, in your marriage, in your workplace, because two people are holding their opinion so strongly and they're butting heads, neither one willing to budge. In true unity and peace in a church or in a family or in a home is an individual responsibility. It begins by demonstrating the mind of Christ, setting aside pride, setting aside what I deem as my own rights, taking a lowly position for the sake of peace. But you say, but I'm right, and they should acknowledge that. That wasn't Jesus' mindset. Of course he was right. He's God. But he willingly set that aside and didn't use it to his own advantage, but stooped to serve others. Beloved, what rights are you clinging to that creates turmoil and strife? A servant has no rights. And this is the picture that Jesus gives. The amazing thing is that those who are willing to follow this example of Christ and serve others are vindicated, vindicated before God. Because while others may not see the, the glory in serving and actually descending the ladder, God says those who do that I actually hold in the highest esteem. And this is the rest of the hymn. In verse 9, we learn that God honors the humble and those who serve others. Look at verse 9. Therefore, 
Okay, based on all that's come before, because Jesus did this. He didn't demand his own right. He stepped out of heaven. He poured himself into humanity. He became obedient to death because he took this descending, humble approach. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him. In other words, what does God think of this? Somebody who would actually stoop and not demand their right, but be humble. What is God's estimation? God says, they're exalted in my view. God exalts this way of thinking. How does he do this? Verse 9, Christ is exalted by the Father. It says that God highly exalts him. The term highly exalted there is a comparative term. We have terms like this in English. We say someone is tall, taller, and what? Tallest. This is the term for exaltedest. God has highly exalted him. In other words, nobody else gets exalted like Jesus. Why? In the context, it's because he took the lowest step down. The reason he gets the place up here is because he came the furthest distance from there. And this is exactly what God exalts. The greatest demonstration of humility now warrants the highest estimation in God's view and in God's eyes. And how does God do this? We're told in verse 9 that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What is this name? Well, we read in the text, it's got to be Jesus, right? Or, or Christ, which means Messiah. But actually, the name, Jesus' name is already given and applied to him. It's saying that he has a name that will be given to him. And what is this name that will be given to him? It's found down in verse 11. It says, every tongue will confess that Jesus is who? Jesus is who? Lord. And that was a very significant name or title in this day because that was the name or the title that Caesar enjoyed. And as a Roman citizen, you would make this proclamation, Caesar is Lord. He's head over everything. He's the supreme ruler. He demands my ultimate allegiance. And this hymn that Christians would sing in that context said, no, 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 that man in Rome is all wrong. There's only one Lord, and Jesus deserves that title. And God says that someday everybody is going to acknowledge that, that that day is coming. Though confessed now as Lord of the church, and rightfully so, one day this confession of Jesus as Lord is going to be universal. The point is this. Jesus, when he was on earth, said this. The first will be what? Last. And the last will be what? First. And Jesus, when he said that, it wasn't theoretical. He was living it out. He put himself very last. Therefore, he will be at the very first Lord of all. 
When will this happen? How will this happen? Verses 10 and 11 tells us. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Let me ask you, is there anything left out there? Heaven, earth, under the earth, anything left out? No. It's a universal acclamation. Everything will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. God will exalt his son publicly before all. A public, universal display of Christ's absolute equality with God and his absolute humility as a man. And God says, everyone's going to know that. Now, friend, there's an opportunity for you today to acknowledge that. Many people live in this world today, and they don't. They have some other kind of Lord. Mostly, it's themselves. Remember I said the rise of self-importance? All that is is a personal confession. I'm Lord. And people should bow to my claim. And that is a miserable, frustrating, angry way to live. And this text says there is only one Lord. Not everybody acknowledges that now, but they will. My contention this morning is the time for you to acknowledge it is right now and not later. Because at the end of this world, when the true Lord comes back, there will be people who have rejected his lordship, and they will be separated from him in a place called hell for eternity. And those people, even there, will have to acknowledge, yes, he is the Lord. By force of will, as it were. But right now, there is the possibility that God extends to you that you can receive Jesus as Lord today. Won't you acknowledge that he is is Lord of everything? He gave himself for you. That you might have forgiveness of sin through him and that he would be Lord of your life. This is the opportunity for you today. Receive him as Lord. And notice that all of this at the end of verse 11 will be to the glory of God the Father. This is the chief end of every man and all things is the glory of God. And it's right that this hymn ends this way. All of this happened ultimately to the glory of God. God honors the humble and those who serve others. This is God's estimation of this mindset. Humbling myself, not demanding my rights, but meeting the need of another. It was at the end of the Civil War that William Tecumseh Sherman prepared to lead the great parade down Pennsylvania Avenue with all of the troops. The Union had won, and he would stand at the beginning, ahead of the army, declaring the victory in Washington, D.C. This was on May 24, 1865. One of his generals, a guy by the name of O.O. Howard, he was scheduled to ride at the head of his division of troops. He was a proud Tennessean. And he was going to ride at the head of that division from Tennessee, these men that he had fought with, that he had bled with. And he was looking forward to that opportunity. A few days before the parade, however, Sherman summoned General Howard to his headquarters and said, General, I have a request to ask of you. 
Howard said, I'm yours to command. Sherman said, you know that General Logan has recently been commanding your company of Tennesseans. Yes, sir, Howard said. Howard, he said, would you do something for me? General Logan wants to ride at the head of his old division, and I want you to surrender your command and allow him to do that. Howard swallowed hard. He had fought with those Tennesseans. He'd lived with them on the battlefield and the campground. He had lost an arm in the war fighting with them. He had earned the place of honor to ride at the front of that troop and be acknowledged as their leading commander. Nevertheless, Howard turned to Sherman and he said, since you put it this way, And since I am a Christian, I will do it gladly. General Logan may ride at the head of my troops. Sherman looked at Howard in amazement and admiration, and he said, Howard, I expected that you would do it. And because you've had this attitude, I want you now to ride with me at the head of the whole army. You will have my command. And it was this act of humility and mindset by Howard that Sherman honored and put him at the front. This is the mind of Christ, and this is God's estimation of that mind. It's not putting yourself forward and demanding your right. It's putting yourself under, seeking to humbly serve others and God exalts that by his attitude and actions Christ is the perfect example of putting aside self-interest and serving others beloved this is the incarnation it's what the text exhorts us to do imitate this mindset Think to yourself, to what rights have you been clinging to tightly? Perhaps you're more concerned with your right to be respected by a loved one rather than stooping to serve them and meet them in their time of need and helping them. Perhaps you're clinging to a right to be noticed and appreciated for who you are and what you've done. And that's not a bad thing. But are you willing to give up that right to not be noticed and humbly serve and think of others? This is the mind of Christ, and it's the path to unity, the path to forgiveness, the path to peace, and it's a path that we should all imitate this Christmas won't you think about imitating the incarnation that God would give us all this mindset and it would certainly bring peace and peace on earth let's bow together as we